This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today we've got a special guest on the podcast. Her name is Leah Savas, and so she is a reporter for World, and she's also the co-author of a new book with Marvin Alasky called The Story of Abortion in America, A Street-Level History, 1652 to 2022. And so if I go back to whenever I was pitched this book, because I get pitched a lot of books. I mean, this year, I've literally said no to probably 20 interview chances for every one that I take on. That's just kind of how this this uh, year has you know worked out. But whenever I got this one, it was like, okay... I've read books about abortion. I've read books about how abortion is wrong based on the Bible and Christianity. I've read, you know, books about how you can argue against abortion, but not a book that would detail the history of abortion. And when I read the description, I was like, okay, a street level view. So these are going to be actual stories of things that have happened to people, you know, uh, I guess... (laughs) whether they wanted it to happen to them or not, and basically what people's opinions were on the ground floor of this issue. And so I was very excited to dig into this book. I mean, it's a a big book. It's about 500 pages. But when I started digging into this book, uh, Marvin Olasky did like the first four sections, and then Leah did the last section, which is basically covering 1995 through present day. But guys, even if you were well-informed on the issue of abortion, which I thought I was, you start reading about things that were happening in the 1600s around the globe, and it's just like, wow. Like we, we think things, you know, turn around like crazy because, you know, America's not even recognizable from what it was even a decade ago, but hundreds and hundreds of years ago, hundreds of years, you know, before America was even a thing, here's what was basically happening on this land mass that we currently reside on or on other land masses around the globe. And it was a very, very interesting book. So I was, you know, very, very happy to have Leah on here today. And so in this We talk about where the idea came from on the book and, you know, kind of what her connection to Marvin is and how all those things go. But then on her section, we, I I wanted to talk to her about the rise of pro-life pregnancy centers and how ultrasounds basically changed the game for a lot of people. Basically how uh, the men have a tremendous impact on whether or not their women keep their babies and keep their kids and those types of things. We dug in a lot there, but then we dug into also how most pastors on the planet won't even go near abortion and how egregiously wrong that is. And we tie that into some stuff from her section, but also from Marvin's section. Then we go into the the complicity of the mainstream media and Hollywood in terms of how people view abortion, kind of trying to change the narrative to a more pro-choice side of things, how the Democratic Party went from in the early 2000s being just kind of mildly pro-choice to being like, no, shout your abortion, abortion for any reason, no consequences. Let's have the taxpayers pay for it. We talk about the shout your abortion movement and where that started. We talk about the incremental approach to pro-life legislation versus, you know, the radical approach or the complete criminalization approach. And then we wrapped up talking about the the Dobbs decision, right? You know, June 24, 2022, one of the greatest days in the history of this country where the Supreme Court decided to overturn Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey. And we talk about all those details. Guys, it was a very informative conversation. But again, I, I can't say it enough. The story of abortion in America is a book that you have to read. If you're a pro-lifer, there's so much information in here. There are so many citations that if someone says something stupid, oh, well, you know, back in the 1600s, this is what they believed, or, oh, you know, back in the early 90s, this is kind of what they did. No, you're going to basically remove all of those arguments from people. So it's a very, very important tool for you guys to have in your tool bag. And so I'm just so excited to share this interview with you. So without further ado, 
Let's get into it. Leah Savas, welcome to Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, I'm really glad I asked you off air how to say your last name because I was going to say it Savas like I was supposed to be holding, you know, a, a glass of wine while I said it. But you gave me the best phonetic help that you possibly could have with your last name. You're like, yeah, it's kind of like savage, but Savas or Savas or something like that. I was like, okay, I, I can be down with that. So does that reflect how you write and how you do your normal everyday living? Are you, are you pretty savage in how you do things? Um, honestly, no, I'm not. <laughs> I probably um, would have guessed that, but that's yeah. okay. But I I hope that things come across strong and um, you know, committed to the truth. So yeah, I guess in some ways, you know, that that is a hope that I can do that. Um, but I, I am I tend to be more of a softy. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I can say that I, I picked up a little bit of that in your personality as well before we hit record, but uh, we're going to see how that is reflected in the work that you've done because you are a reporter for World, but also the co-author of the book that's going to be the main center point of what we talk about today, the story of abortion in America, a street level history. And that's going to be 1652 to 2022. And then obviously we're going to talk about what goes on beyond that. But let's just start small. Let's start simple before we dig into the new book. What drew you to journalism and to writing? Because that's not something that draws in everybody, but it drew you in. Yeah. So I actually was an English major in college, but did not have anything to do with reporting with journalism. I did more essay writing. Um, I submitted a poem to a thing, a poetry publication on campus, but I never was involved with the campus newspaper. Um, so it wasn't until actually my first job after college that I realized I didn't really like what I was doing. I was doing marketing for a small business. I didn't really like it. And I had been listening to World's Daily News podcast at that time and really liked the sort of reporting that they did on the podcast. And kind of through that and through just past connections with um, World News Group, I decided to apply for their training program, World Journalism Institute. And that's where I really learned how to do journalism and what that looked like. So, um, yeah, so that's kind of the, the way I got into reporting was through the World Journalism Institute and my love for, you know, the kind of stuff they were doing on their podcast. Okay, well, let's talk a little bit more about that because most people, I, I won't say most people, a lot of people are probably not familiar with World. Like, okay, is it a website? Is it a magazine? Is it a whatever? Like, it's not, you know, in that upper tier of what would you say, like a New York Times or Washington Post yeah. or Fox News or CNN. So what is kind of the focus of World? Why, why is it different? What does it bring to the marketplace? Yeah, so World, at World, we're all about biblically objective journalism. So the idea there, it's, you know, sometimes we'll say, oh, we're a Christian publication. But when we say Christian publication, we don't mean, oh, we only write about church news or news related to Christians, but rather we try to report the news um, from a biblical perspective. So instead of trying to claim that we're being um, completely objective, we don't come at stories with some sort of worldview. No, we're biblically objective. We come at stories with the view of scripture being the ultimate source of truth. And we kind of try to report with that guide, that kind of framework. Um, that's how our stories kind of come about. So. Okay, excellent. I appreciate you going into that. Well, let's go ahead and dig into the story of abortion in America. So when I was pitched this book, it had abortion in the title, so I was automatically interested. But there are a lot of books, I guess you could say, that are in this this vein that are just not very good. Um, there's some where it's like, okay, these 
These don't give me anything unique in terms of the arguments. And I typically am reading books uh, that will help equip me to be able to push back the arguments from the pro-abortion lobby. But a history book about abortion, I had never come across before. And then I was also intrigued by the title, A Street Level History from 1652 to 2022. So let's go to the very beginning of the project. Where did the idea for this book come from? And then how did you become a co-author of it? Because you're co-authoring this with Marvin Olasky, who writes the the first four sections of the book, and then you write the last section, the fifth section. So just kind of take me through that because it's it's kind of a joint process, but he's focusing on a huge chunk and you're focusing on a smaller, but perhaps more important chunk because it's modern. Just take me through all of it. Yeah. So the idea for this book was Marvin's. Um, Marvin Olasky, my co-author, He's written about abortion in the past. He's been a part of the pro-life movement for decades. His wife helped start a pregnancy center in Austin, Texas, where they live. Um, he wrote a book in the 1990s called um, Abortion Rights. And some of the material in that book actually does appear in this book. So there's some of it that overlaps. But how the idea for this this book came about was um, Marvin wanted to do an update of abortion rights, kind of, um, you know, add to add to it what has happened since the 90s and kind of publish it again to kind of bring that material before readers. But as he was kind of doing his background research, um, he realized there's a lot more information available, in, a lot more readily available than it was in the 90s. So there's all these online databases that you can search easily and find information about past abortion cases, the history of abortion in the country, um, court cases related to abortion, newspaper clippings. There's all this stuff available online. And so when he saw that, he was like, oh, you know, I can't just do an update. I have to basically write a new book. So he asked me to help him with the last section, which is the, the update part, like from the 90s until present day. Um, and yeah, I had just started writing for World and was reporting on abortion at the time. So it was kind of fitting well with my beat at World. Um, and a lot of the stuff that I write in this last section came from some of my original reporting um, during those last couple of years that I've been on this beat. So that's kind of how that came about. Okay. So just as an edifying point here from the beginning, uh, I'm an incredibly critical person. That's just my personality. And I love to nitpick. I don't always nitpick publicly, but whether it's someone's book or someone's presentation, the thing about this book is it was the, the sheer number of citations that both of you gave throughout the book. It's like whenever you're reading a Thomas Sowell book, it's like you can't just read his narrative. You have to reckon with the citations as well. And there was just so many things uh, about this book that that was so interesting, but you could definitely tell that obviously it was easier to kind of get some of the narratives, um, you know, from history that we see. But let's talk about Marvin's sections, his four sections that he wrote, because you didn't write those. So I'm not going to ask you like specific things because there's like individualized, contextualized stories from his section. And, you know, there, it'd be impossible for you to be ready for all those questions. But if you had to give us a 30,000 foot view of what he describes in his section, how would you encapsulate it? Yeah, so um, I I would say that his sections of the book are some of the most interesting because he digs into some history that I was personally I was not familiar with until reading his mm -hmm. drafts. And actually, I mean, like I mentioned, some of the material is also in 
um, his earlier book, earlier book, Abortion Rights. So, so in reading that too, I became familiar with some of the material, but kind of the idea is um, we're looking back at the history and tradition of America. Um, what did the history and tradition of early America have to say about the view of abortion that people in communities shared? Um, how did they see abortion? Was it acceptable? Was it not acceptable? Um, did they see it as murder? Did they see it as just another procedure? And um, so I guess a 30,000 foot view of these early chapters would be, we can see in these early chapters that early America um, did not see abortion as acceptable. It was um, tried as murder in the 1600s, um, men who forced abortifacients on women um, who they impregnated went on trial for murder. They didn't get convicted of murder because of a lack of evidence, but the communities around them obviously saw that as an unacceptable practice. Um, and these early um, Americans also really linked someone's view of abortion and their act of participating in abortion um, with their understanding of scripture. So we can see how um, an understanding of scripture really fuels or does not fuel someone's pro-life perspective. Um, we can also see that doctors, even as early as the 1800s, understood that life begins at conception, at fertilization. So um, that kind of, that takes a, takes a stab at the Roe v. Wade decision in which the justices wrote that um, there's no consensus about when life begins. I mean, sure, there maybe wasn't a consensus among historians or legal scholars, but doctors in the 1800s were saying in lectures that life begins at conception, that there's a distinct individual from the moment of fertilization. So, you know, so those are some of the things that we get at in these chapters. Um, but we also talk about how um, there was just a lack of knowledge among the everyday person about what's going on when someone is pregnant, what the development of a um, unborn baby is like. Um, so uh, when you have these moments of say, like at the World's Fair in the 1930s, there was a, uh, a sculpture of several sculptures of an unborn baby at different stages of development. And, you know, people are lining up to see this. It's fascinating to them because they're not familiar with this. They don't, they don't see that. They don't have ultrasound images at this time. So they're finally able to see in moments like that what doctors have known for a long time, which is this is a human. So when they get to see that actually in sculptures or when a baby dies um, and they can see the, the dead baby that has come out of its mother, they are also fascinated like, oh, wow, look, that's a human. So we see some of those, those moments of people, like everyday people kind of recognizing that recognizing the humanity of the unborn and it backing up the more scriptural view that we see really taking priority in early America, but lose, that loses priority as time goes on, as communities break apart, as people move to big cities without the accountability of parents and relatives and, and the community members. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of, I, I know that it's hard to summarize <laughs> so much. Well, uh, you're summarizing 
Yeah, you're summarizing like 400 pages worth of stuff. But what's great, uh, Leah, is you brought up a bunch of stuff that I was going to ask you about. And so because a lot of your work uh, taking on the modern side of this attaches to the stuff that Marvin was talking about. Because here's the thing is I fancy myself an informed person on this subject matter in every page I turned scrolled. Sorry, it's 2023. So every page that I scrolled, you know, reading it on my iPad, I was like, didn't know that. Didn't know that either. Had no idea that was going on at that time. And so that's why for anyone in my audience that's pro-life, this is a must-read book because R.C. Sproul's book called Abortion, that's a must-read book, but so is this one. This one is something that's going to equip you when someone says anything ignorant, like, oh, well, back in the 1700s, this is what they thought. It's like, no, they didn't. No, they didn't. And uh, Marvin gave me about 4,700 references to make sure that I could win this argument. So (laughs) Marvin covered 1652 through about 1994. And then you pick up from there, you go from 1995 to 2022. Now you do go back and talk about different things that happened in other years, but that's really the chunk of time that you focus on. Now, before we dig into even more specific detail on your section, I wanted to read a quote from the introduction to your section. The spread of ultrasound technology opened a window to the womb and made visible the developing baby, a boon to the compassion wing of the pro-life movement. Abortion advocates countered by celebrating abortion as a spiritual act. Meanwhile, advocates on both sides of the issue pushed new legislation either to enshrine Roe at the state level or to challenge its status as settled law. And both sides avidly watched the Supreme Court. Would you say that's a good encapsulation or 30,000 foot view of everything that you wrote in your section? Because like I read it, I just finished it yesterday. I don't think I could write a sentence or two that could encapsulate it that way. <laughs> yeah. I, um, I think I wrote that, that summary. I mean, it, it's been a while, but I'm pretty sure I wrote that. It is hard to encapsulate everything that's happened in the last couple decades and a half. Um, but yeah, it, it's hard, but <laughs> I think that is kind of a good summary of, of everything that's happened in the last few years. So Okay, yeah. well, good. Well, let's dig into some of the detail because in your section of the book, you detail the rise of pro-life pregnancy centers that used ultrasounds to show moms and dads their children in the womb which may not sound like a lot because here we are in modernity and we're so arrogant that we think history started the year we were born, right? And we just forget that, no, go back 10 years before you were born, 50 years before you were born. The entire world was different. Like, you know, people like to do this, this mind exercise of, you know, what, what era in the world would you like to go back and live? And I'm like, no era before this one. Like, I don't want to get dental surgery in the 1800s. Are you out of your mind? Maybe I want to go back to yesterday because I wouldn't have eaten as much ice cream. So I would have woke up feeling better. But aside from that, like people just don't give any real consideration to history. But let's specifically talk about the direct impact that pregnancy, pro-life pregnancy centers that used ultrasounds and what that had on the pro-life movement. Yeah, so um, it was in the 90s that a lot of pregnancy centers started introducing ultrasound technology at their centers. Now, even in the 80s, there were some pregnancy centers that had already introduced this technology. And immediately, they start to see how um, using this technology helps women see what's going on inside of them. So like what I was talking about, about the sculptures at the World's Fair, um, like how people would line up to look at these sculptures and see the development of the unborn baby. Um, in this case, it's women coming to pregnancy centers looking for help when they're unexpectedly pregnant. And, and 
when they're there, they're able to see their own baby, not just a sculpture mm. of some baby, <laughs> some baby right. that perhaps not even a real actual baby that someone actually saw, but just someone's memory of what it looks like. Or, um, But when they can see their own baby, they see that humanity. And that's been a real um, invaluable tool for the pro-life movement. Um, and it was cool too. I got to speak with the doctor who was the first, um, who was the director of the first center that actually offered these ultrasounds to women. Um, and her name's Gita Swamidas. She told me all about some of her memories of of showing women their own unborn children. One woman who had had, I think it was 11 abortions. Um, mm. And she had not in all that time and all of those abortions, she had not actually seen one of her unborn children. Um, so when she finally saw this other child that she was pregnant with, um, it really hit her in a different way. She actually still ended up getting an abortion, but really regretted it after the fact when she got pregnant again, she kept that baby. And, um, and also, you know, Gita told me about how she was able to use um, all the ultrasound image in conjunction with just reminders of what God's word says to encourage women to not get an abortion. So like, for instance, this one woman came from a local church. She was a young, young woman. She was a leader in her youth group. Um, like an adult, young adult leader, um, and she had become pregnant. Um, and she wanted Gita to give her a reason why she could get an abortion biblically. She was like, please, you know, is there any biblical reason why I could get an abortion? I, I just made one mistake, you know, just one mistake. How can I get over this? I don't want to, I don't want all the youth in this group to know what I did. And mm -hmm. Gita's like, you know what? You know, she shows her the ultrasound image of her child the, the woman starts to cry seeing this and, and Gita reminds her it's a sin to get an abortion no matter the circumstances of how your baby was conceived. Um, so it would be an even, you know, obviously having sex outside of marriage was one, one big sin, but to try to cover it up with another sin, um, you know, that Gita was able to tell her, no, that's not okay. Um, and she had kind of this evidence of the ultrasound image to back that up. So hearing her stories, it was really incredible and encouraging to me to hear her turning back to scripture, turning back to what God has to say, um, because I think it's easy for the pro-life movement to think, oh, well, let's focus on the science. Let's focus on the ultrasound images. When in reality, as Marvin's chapters show, it is that understanding of scripture and understanding of the gospel that really motivates a culture's valuing of unborn children and their position on abortion. Yeah, I would absolutely echo that. And uh, I'm glad you said that woman's last name because I had no idea how to say it uh, when in the book, but yeah, it's a tremendously unique name. But I'll even say just for my wife and I, you know, ultrasounds were a nervous thing for us because uh, we had lost two children before, uh, you know, we had a baby that we actually got to meet, our, our firstborn James. And that first ultrasound, you're holding your breath because you don't know if there's going to be a heartbeat. And that is a absolutely destructive thing for a lot of women whenever they go in with the excitement and anticipation and there is no heartbeat. There are just countless stories of, of that type of thing. And so when you can humanize the Imago Dei, an image bearer of God and be like, 
No, they're, they're moving around. And if you try to destroy that baby, they're going to recoil from the pain of that abortion. Like that's a big deal. Like, and, and we're, look, we're not mistakers that, that young lady in the youth group, she wasn't a mistaker. She was a sinner. And the thing that's different about her mistake, quote unquote, is that she was going to multiply that mistake by an infinite degree by destroying an image bearer of Christ, unless somebody gave her a different alternative. And uh, we're going to get way, way, way more into that. But we got to hold back a little bit here. We, we got to keep a few, a few uh, bullets in the barrel here. But you have a quote from the book from Donna Izell, and she's from the Arkansas Pregnancy Resource Center. So I wanted to read this quote from Donna. I witness daily women who are amazed at just how developed their unborn baby is at six weeks, eight weeks, and 10 weeks. So when I read a quote like that, well, duh, I already know that. But there are people out there, and, and I don't mean this to be funny or tongue in cheek at all. They think what's going on inside the woman's stomach is like human-like soup. Like it's just kind of this soupy mixture. And then like right before it comes shooting out of the vaginal canal, it just into a baby. It just becomes a baby, right? It's, it's fully formed. But I see this Leah as a tremendous downfall and opportunity for the pro-life movement and for Christian schools in particular to be like from the earliest stages of your education as a human in this country, we should be telling you about what's going on during that process. Because I know a lot of people are worried about sex ed and for good reason in public schools, because here we are asking third graders what gender they feel like today and exposing them to a pornographic content and all that. But can you imagine if a, a Christian school were to talk about the development processes of an unborn baby so that when that person is 16, 17, 35, 50 years old, they have those pictures in mind. Again, I just feel like this is a tremendous opportunity that frankly, the pro-life groups and Christian schools have just really sucked at. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting that you mentioned her story specifically because um, Donna actually had an abortion when she was younger and didn't know until she was walking in to the abortion facility, how developed her baby was. And she Which knew- Leah. Leah, that is very common of women that work at these pro-life uh, abortion facilities now. A lot of them have that story. They, When they were younger, they sinned and, and conceived and did all those different things. And then they killed their children and they had no idea, which leads to you know them understanding their depravity, which leads them to a better understanding of why they need a savior. But that is not uncommon for these for these women that work work there. But go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Well, with Donna, it was someone actually on the sidewalk, a pro-lifer who called out something about her baby having fingers um, and toes. And Donna stopped and was like, oh, like she had just not thought about it. Um, and she kind of sees similar things from the women that she works with today. Um, obviously, there are women who know exactly what what they're doing. You know, when they get an abortion, they know what's going on inside of them. Um, like for instance, I was outside of an abortion facility near where I live a couple weeks ago. Um, and you know, there are pro-lifers outside of the facility. We're calling out to women, like, please don't kill your child. And one of the women said, I already have four. I don't need another one. You know, so like she already, she's already a mother. She, she must have some knowledge of this and yet her heart is still hard towards her child. So it's not that knowledge that necessarily changes things. Um, but it can, in some cases, it can be the thing that kind of um, just wakes someone up to what the, to what's really going on. So 
yeah, obviously that that knowledge is really important and educating people about that is important. But like I said before, um, it has to come with an understanding of, well, so if that is a human, then why why would we protect that human? What does make that human valuable? Um, and the answers come from scripture in that case. Well, and Leah, I would say as well, uh, if your schools aren't going to be teaching things in this way, parents listening to this right now, that means it's your responsibility. It's not the school, the the Christian school or otherwise. It's not their job to catechize your children and your family. It's your job to do that, especially the dads listening to this. But to talk about it uh, in, in a different way, regardless of how you view the world, so whether you think that we are created in the image of God by an all-powerful, all-seeing God, or whether you think we're highly evolved chimps that, you know, wear pants and talk to one another, you can argue for protecting that life regardless, right? Now, lean on scripture and lean on on the truth because that is a, a you know, something that you could lean on where you're going to have your feet planted firmly on the ground. But even on the chimp side of things, just say like, well, you think that the only way that we're here today is because at some point along the line, we we decided that killing rival chimps wasn't a good idea for the propagation of the species. And so with that in mind, why would we destroy chimps that are inside the womb and then just sit there and stare at them and wait for them to come up with an argument? And, and again, in most of these cases, they won't come up with anything that's even vaguely cogent. Now, in the book as well, Leah, you describe an internal report from CareNet about the effect that ultrasounds had on women's you know, decisions to abort or not. So this is a quote from your section. For women, quote, actively pursuing an abortion, unquote. However, the percentage that chose not to abort increased from 26% to 45% after they had seen the ultrasound images. And this is seems like a byline here, but this is very, very important. And to 55% when they had the father with them during the ultrasound. So the ultrasound in and of itself, when the woman was alone from 26% to not abort to 45% to not abort. But when the man was there, it jumped another 10% to 55%. Okay. Now I want to, you know, attach that to a quote from Marvin's section here. Community pressure on young men meant that pregnant unmarried women could generally count on marriage before going into labor. If young men hesitated, older men intervened. They rarely needed shotguns, but every father had one. To be married under shotgun pressure carried no disgrace, and most marriages were by, at least informal, parental arrangement anyway. The reason why I bring this up is because I've sat in the Hope Pregnancy Center here in Edmond, Oklahoma, and we support them financially. We've done some things to help them with what they're doing. They talk about the importance of not only ministering to mama, but ministering to the dad. And they've got a call sheet of men that when a woman comes in with her boyfriend or husband or just some you know rando baby daddy, that they have a man that is ministering to him as well. But men on all sides of this issue, pro, anti, whatever, they have completely ne neglected to understand their impact on this particular situation. I always get a little bit upset whenever I whenever I describe this, but the, the person that leads that facility here in my town, she describes watching these young women who are pregnant and didn't want to be pregnant, but they know innately that they don't need to get an abortion. But they are looking to their man, Right. Again, baby, daddy, boyfriend, husband, whatever. They're looking to them with this desperation in their eyes, like, save me, please. Save our child. I just need you to put your arm around me, to hold my hand and tell me it's going to be okay and that we're going to do what it takes. But men won't 
do it. They're cowards. They're uh, uh, oblivious to their understanding of their role in that relationship, but they're also just, they will take hook, line, and sinker the lines we get from culture and from Hollywood. And we'll get into more, more of that later to be like, Oh, well, all shucks, this is her decision. And no matter what she does, I'm going to support her, which is not what a man says. That's what a boy says. That's what a boy that can shave says. So to save me from blowing out a gasket here, hop in because the role of men in this fight is incredibly important, but we don't see it that way. Yeah. And actually, when you're talking about this, what comes to my mind is one other story from my section um, about this young woman named Hannah Ranowski. And um, so she, I think, I think it's the second to last chapter in the section in the book. Um, I tell her story and how she, she got pregnant right before um, the Texas heartbeat law went into effect in 2021. So that was September 21 when that law went into effect and she found out she was pregnant at the end of August. So when she found out she was pregnant, she thought that the state law was already in effect and that she wouldn't be able to get an abortion. Um, she wasn't married, um, she, but she already had two other kids, one of them with her current boyfriend. Um, and she, she actually described to me feeling a bit of relief thinking that, well, abortion isn't an option for me. So, you know, so I'm going to have this baby. Um, But then when she found out from the people at the birth control clinic that she was at, where she found out she was pregnant, when she found out that the law was not yet in effect, they also recommended to her an abortion facility to go to. Um, She was like, whoa, you know, it just added a whole new layer of complexity to my decision. Um, Because before, it seemed like abortion wasn't an option for her. So then obviously talking with her boyfriend, um, she felt a lot of pressure from him. And and it was just subtle, though. It wasn't like she he was going to, you know, move out if she didn't get an abortion. It was more of like, oh, well, I think you should I think you should just schedule this abortion just in case, you know, just schedule it, see what happens. Um so it's just subtle things like that and his subtle concerns even about finances and how they're going to support a third child. Um, all those little, little pressures. Um, she ended up starting a chemical abortion, but then regretted it and was able to access abortion pill reversal treatment through a pregnancy center in the area. Um, but yeah, it really was that subtle pressure from her boyfriend. And then, and then just the offer of help from the pregnancy center that was able to get her out of that. Um, I contacted her a few months after I had that initial interview with her. um, And I was able to hear when, hear about when the baby was actually born. And I asked her, you know, how is, how's your boyfriend doing? And she was like, you know, well, it took him a little while to adjust, but now he loves her. He loves his daughter. And, and, it's not like he's angry at her for not getting this abortion, which unfortunately would not always be the case in some situations. Um, but still, her story was was very meaningful to me in reminding me of what the protection, what a protection the law can be to women, say, in her situation. If, if it had been illegal, could her husband have pressured her to do something illegal? <laughs> you know, so not only not only is it obviously wrong for 
for the men to pressure women in these situations, but it's also wrong for states to be allowing abortion. Um, it's just not something that someone should have to decide whether or not they want to kill their child. Um, and having that as an availability sometimes leads them to doing things that they don't want to do. Although some people really do want to get an abortion, people shout their abortions. So we have people on all, you know, a whole range of um, kind of motivations coming at this whole abortion issue. Don't worry, we'll get there as well. We're certainly going <laughs> to address that. But just to put a bow on the the shame point, I say all the time that shame is a tremendous motivator. When I was growing up, I was significantly overweight and then I made changes and I'm, you know, in really, really good shape today. And I remember the shame of taking off my shirt, uh, being a little kid and getting made fun of at the community pool. And some people are like, oh, kids can be so cruel. I'm like, no, I use that as fuel. And that fuel is going to, you know, assuming that I don't get attacked by a rabid, you know, pack of dogs whenever I'm walking out to go get the mail, it's going to help me to live longer and be healthier and to honor the only body that God gave me. But we live in the society where no one can ever feel uncomfortable. We don't do neighborhood parenting anymore. You know, like when you were riding your bike as a kid and you're on the other, on the other side of the neighborhood and you're acting like a knucklehead. And then one of the other moms in the neighborhood gave you a whooping for doing that. Like that is one of the things from an old time that I wish we could bring back because shame is a tremendous motivator. But we, we have this, ah, man, just, you know, do you bro. And, you know, let love, you know, let go and let God, we have this idea that no matter what God's just going to bless all our, our decisions and shame is just not the motivator that it should be. Now, this next question is going to take a little bit to set up, but I think it's very, very important. I think it's a, a hinge point really for the, the impact of this book, in my opinion. But in the book, you detail, you know, a major shift that happened within Christendom around the subject of abortion. So, uh, you know, add this to the list of things I didn't know before I read it. But amongst other things, you describe how the Southern Baptist Convention, the SBC, went from really defending the Roe decision in the early 70s to a complete biblical defense of human life beginning at conception by the early 80s. So it took about a decade, which is about a decade too long. But if you look back at what they were saying in the early 70s versus the 80s versus today, completely different. But then here's a quote from uh, one of the quotes from Marvin's section, and then we'll get into a couple more from here. To understand why abortion was so rare in early America, we need to spend less time debating obscure common law cases and more time entering the stream of church-going colonists walking to common worship on a Sunday morning with the father carrying the family Bible. That was uh, the one book in most homes in an era of frequent Bible reading, few miss God's creative involvement in human life from its beginning. Colonists read in Psalms, Job, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Luke, Galatians, and other books, not only that we were made in God's image, but that he knitted me together in my mother's womb, formed me in the womb, and formed you in the womb. There's another quote from Marvin's section. This one is from a pastor of Old South First Presbyterian Church in Newburyport, Massachusetts, all the way back in 1891. And it was American pastors who dodged the abortion issue constitute, quote, the church asleep, unquote. And then here's a quote actually from your section, Leah. Christians throughout history have said the developing baby in the womb is also made in the image of God but some pastors have been reluctant to say so. For years, theologian R.C. Sproul produced pro-life materials for pastors to use with their congregations, but often received a discouraging response. He said in 2014, quote, it was like a broken record. Pastors said, I can't use this material. It'll split our church, unquote. That year, a survey of 40 pastors from denominations in the National Association of Evangelicals found all agreed that life begins at conception and that pastors should preach against abortion, 
but five had never preached that and almost half hadn't broached the subject in the past year. So all that's set up to get to this. I constantly call out preachers for their cowardice and for their fear of their congregations. Oh, I don't want to talk about, you know, transgenderism because that's just going to, you know, it's a really hot button issue and I'm just going to, you know, teach about this obscure passage from judges. And, oh, you know, I don't want to talk about homosexuality because I don't want anyone to to feel uh, judged. And, you know, if they do talk about it, their sermon, as Vody Bauckham said, dies the death of a thousand qualifications before they get to the point. Oh, I just love gay people. I have gay people that are my friends and I would never want to judge a gay person. And so everything they say after that, the sting has completely left it. But on the abortion issue, it is egregious what churches and what pastors are doing because this is not some obscure issue. This isn't like, oh, is the earth billions of years old or is it 6,000 years old? This isn't like, hey, we're looking at a word in the Greek to see if it means this or that. This is babies dying, image bearers of God dying. And here we are just wearing our press shirts and, you know, going to the parking lot, we're going in and getting our warm coffee. We're here in the rock show. We're here in our Ted talk. And then we bounce. So talk to me a little bit about that because I find it to be absolutely reprehensible, especially since these men know that they're going to have to give an account to God one day for how they shepherded their flock. And on this issue, they've been completely absent. Yeah. Well, I think the reason why it's so important, why well, I think there are multiple reasons why it's so important for like gospel preaching, Bible believing pastors to talk about abortion is because there are there are pastors, quote unquote pastors, who are not gospel believing, not Bible preaching pastors who promote abortion as being a good thing, as as being something that even the Bible champions. Yeah, that it's loving misuse. somehow. Yeah. Well, and they're also misuse those obscure passages. Like mm-hmm. there's a passage in Numbers that describes, you know, how are we going to test to see if a woman um, was uh, adulterous? Like, is she, is she, was she, was she unfaithful to her husband? And the process involves like mixing some dust from the tabernacle into a drink and making her drink it. And then some translations of scripture say that if she was adulterous, her womb will miscarry. But you know, that's not that's not actually a literal translation of the original Hebrew. Um, a more literal translation would be her thigh will fall. So, but people, so you know, what is her thigh will fall meme. <laughs> um, but some people will use that that translation of miscarriage to argue, well, see, like even God uses abortion. Like he uses abortion in numbers. I mean, okay, so God is is God. He, he's not a human. So I, I think that's one very important thing to mention. Um, but also that's not a literal translation of the Hebrew. So we can't base our whole theology on those sorts of uh, weird um, interpretations of those passages, um, but rather let's look to how God talks about unborn life. Let's look to Psalm 139. You know, he knitted us together in our mother's wombs. We praise him because we are fearfully and wonderfully made. You know, he knew all of our days before we were even born. Um, they were written in his book. Um, and I think I think preaching that would would provide so much clarity to a congregation that's probably hearing these confusing things about other passages of scripture. Um, even for women who have had abortions, I think avoiding the topic of abortion actually hurts them more than 
helps them. I know, I know that's often a reason like, oh, well, I don't want to hurt women who have had abortions. But if you're avoiding the topic of abortion, think about all of the lack of clarity and um, even application of God's word to the issue of abortion and application of the gospel to abortion. Now, this wasn't in the book, but a couple years ago, I interviewed a woman who um, had had an abortion years and years ago before becoming a Christian, felt okay with it. Then she became a Christian and realized what God had to say about unborn life and murder and recognized what she did was wrong. But for years and years, even going through a bunch of Bible studies, she thought for some reason that Christ's sacrifice, although it had paid for her other sins, could not pay mm-hmm. for the sin of abortion. She saw it as its own category, yeah. um, like, like an unforgivable sin. But it wasn't until going through a post-abortive Bible study that she realized, oh, no, this applies, like the gospel applies to my abortion as well. So I think kind of putting abortion in its own category of like an untouchable topic can lead to that kind of attitude and that kind of confusion that that some women face when they're thinking through like, you know, I sinned and doing this. You know, how does Christ's sacrifice on the cross apply to this particular thing that I did. Um, So all the more reason to be really clear about the gospel and where God stands on abortion and also um, the solution that he offers to anyone, not just people who have had abortions, but anyone, even an actual like, uh, like a serial killer, someone who, you know, you'd think of as being the actual murderer in kind of the everyday um, images. no, Christ's sacrifice is sufficient to pay for all of those. Um, and and I think that can that can be a big motivator for pastors who maybe are hesitant to bring up the topic because they're thinking about those women. I would urge them to think about those women, you know, encourage them by showing how the gospel applies. Uh, I think there's so much good stuff there. One thing that you talk about, like with serial killers and all that, I mentioned this a lot on my show recently, but earlier this year, I was invited to come speak at a maximum security prison. And, you know, I was speaking to and interacting with people that had killed people. And, you know, one guy that I know for sure that I shook hands with and talked with, he had killed four people before, four image bearers of God. But one thing about my uh, sermon that I delivered to these men is you guys cross the laws of man. That's why you're here. And that's why I get to leave because I haven't. But all of us have crossed the lines of God. And in that way, we are brothers. And so you need Christ just as much as I do. And I've never shed innocent blood. But the other thing about what you said that I think is key, Leah, is clarity to the congregation. Clarity. Because a lot of people in their flock are confused. They don't, they certainly don't know how to argue against pro-abortion topics because their pastor doesn't talk about it. And I've been critical of even my own pastor, who's a great expository preacher. But in the five, six years I've gone to his church, he's spent about five minutes total on the abortion topic. And if you weren't there that weekend, you just flat out missed out. And you might, you know, take some of the things he says and extrapolate it out to, well, it may actually be loving that women get an abortion in certain circumstances. You'll kind of do the mental gymnastics. But I talked to a Canadian uh, pastor named Jacob Reum, and he talked about every time that he addresses abortion at his church, he is unequivocal, unequivocal that you have killed your child. You are a murderer. But then he echoes the same sentiment I do whenever I speak in front of churches. The very first words out of my mouth is, There is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And then I pause, I let that sit in the room, and I say, if you are in this room and you've killed your baby, or you paid for your baby to be killed, 
Or if you drove someone to and from a facility where a family member of yours ended up being killed or a friend, friend's baby was killed, you were complicit in murder. But Christ died for that too. He died for your white lies and he also died for you shedding innocent blood. So can we all just put on our big boy and big girl pants now and start digging into this topic and why it's so important? And for me, I've had women who have had multiple abortions come up to me afterwards and say, thank you so much for speaking so clearly on this issue because it, I don't feel condemned, but I feel like the gospel is so much sweeter because I understand the level of my depravity. But again, we just skip past that because apparently the 11th commandment is don't ever make somebody feel uncomfortable for any reason whatsoever. Um, so taking a little bit of a left turn here, but also into another important topic that you cover in the book, you talk about the complicity of the mainstream media and Hollywood in the normalization of the practice of abortion. Because again, the, the idea that you were killing an unborn human being, that was just old hat. It's like, well, of course, of course that's a human in there. But now to mention mental gymnastics, again, the mainstream media and Hollywood are like, oh no, there's all these other different topics and all these other different non-contextualized issues that either, you know, inaccurately portray the facts or, or they just ignore the facts of what's happening in order to fit a pro-abortion agenda. Can you talk to us a little bit about how the complicity of the mainstream media and Hollywood is no so nefarious to this topic? Yeah, well, one interesting thing that I learned just in the last few years as I've been reporting on abortion is that Planned Parenthood actually has someone on staff who's there specifically to form relationships with people in Hollywood, um, to have an influence, I guess, have a finger in the pie of a lot of films that come out of Hollywood. Um, so specifically, uh, there's one movie she was involved in called Obvious Child. It was a comedy about an abortion, a woman who got an abortion. And she saw that as a huge victory for her role after years of trying to make relationships with people in Hollywood. She's like, finally, we have the kind of movie that I've been working towards. And it's a movie where this woman gets an abortion and has no regrets. And it's a comedy, you know? So just all of those things, it's like, oh, <laughs> you know, that's, that's not... I mean, you can tell that they're pushing for a specific agenda in, in that film. So um, it'll, it, she'll mention things about like in, in Washington, I think it was a Washington Post article. She would talk about how she would advise people who are making films on like, oh, well, normally at Planned Parenthood, we would have a nice picture on the wall you know, to make the patient feel calm or, oh, you know, a Planned Parenthood staff member would never use words like that, would never use language like that. So kind of sugarcoating, um, putting a nice face on um, the abortion industry in these films. And that really does affect how the culture sees this. So for instance, someone who's never been in an abortion facility or never had an abortion, if these movies are all they're seeing about an abortion, that does change how you think about it. Um, and they, um, uh, there are actually some studies that track the use of abortion in films. Uh, and this is from a pro-abortion university. Um, they, they'll kind of track how, how abortion comes up in films and rate how well, quote unquote, well, that reference turned out. And they'll critique films that make abortion look like a bad thing or that show abortions being dangerous. 
Um, and in one of those reports, they mentioned the influence of um, film and media in changing public perception on gay marriage or transgenderism. And there's, there's, they said, you know, if they could do it with um, the LGBTQ issue, we can do it with abortion too. So, so that is their goal is to change how people think about abortion using the images that they um, they present in films, in movies, and also the mainstream media in general. When you when you read about abortion, you it's very rare that you'll actually get the image of an unborn child, an aborted child. Um, and I'm not saying like a picture, but like a description or like mm -hmm. any mention of this person who is being killed in an abortion, who is also a character in whatever story they're, they're writing. Um, and so that's one thing we tried to do in this book specifically was draw out the unborn child as being a distinct character in our story and, um, and mentioning, um, mentioning even gruesome images of what an abortion looks like, what someone saw when they saw an abortion. Um, so, but you, yeah, you definitely don't get that in mainstream media. When it does come up, it's very, it's actually kind of exciting for me when I see an article that mentions how someone reacted to an abortion or what someone saw. It's like, wow, they actually went there. <laughs> they said the quiet part out loud. I can't believe it. Um, but that's not the sort of thing that the abortion industry will celebrate for instance, when it comes up in a movie. Of course not. And, and they're very overt about it, Leah. I mean, they're not really hiding the ball, but that reminds me of the work that uh, live action and other people do is they'll ask people the question, which is, hey, are you pro-choice or pro-life? And typically people say pro-choice. And then they ask them, hey, would you mind watching a video? It's a cartoon rendering of what actually happens during an abortion. Have you ever seen something like that before? Oh, no. And then they have them watch the video. And then afterwards they're like, Oh my gosh, I had no idea, which should help everyone understand that guys, when you see polls come out, especially headlines of polls, which are basically all lies anyway, when a poll of Americans come out on the question of pro-life versus pro-choice, essentially it's bogus because people are so ignorant about what's actually going on in the womb that their opinion is worthless because they've been sold a bill of goods from the media, Hollywood and, and Democrats. And, and that's, that'll be kind of the next thing I want to talk to you about because in the early 2000s, the Democratic Party, if we can remember all the way back to the early 2000s, the Democratic Party in America was certainly pro-choice, but I guess you could say, Leah, maybe it would be fair to call their, their approach to be tempered. Like it wasn't like crazy. It was tempered, definitely pro-baby murder, but tempered. But now by 2023, their official party platform is abortion for any reason at any point of the pregnancy with no consequences to mother or anyone else and paid for by taxpayer dollars. And I've said it, and I'll defend it uh, to the death, but the Democratic Party is the party of death. They're the party of baby murder. Now they're expanding out their macabre title. They're, they're the party of child mutilation. They're the party of defending eugenics. They're, they're the party of those things that we know to not just be abiblical, but just evil and satanic. But talk to me a little bit about that transition, because we live in a world where we can't recognize what the world looked like six months ago, much less going back a quarter of a century to be like, oh, I wonder what these people thought at that time. Yeah, well, I think a lot of people remember the tagline, 
um, safe, legal, and rare. That's kind of yep. how the Democratic Party approached the abortion issue a couple decades ago. <laughs> and yeah, like that was basically the Clintons. That's what the Clintons said, safe, legal, and rare, which begs the question, if it's morally neutral, why does it need to be safe, legal, and rare? If I need shoulder surgery and someone said, yeah, shoulder surgery should be safe, legal, and rare, it's like, no, I want as many people to get their shoulders fixed as possible. What do you mean safe, legal, and rare? But go ahead. Yeah, yeah. well, and it was interesting. I was reading a mainstream news report recently about um, this big abortion pill case that's going on. Um, and someone, I think it was an op-ed, someone described either that or as a quote from someone in the abortion industry who basically said that they think the abortion pill should be safe, legal, and accessible. <laughs> and I was oh like, gosh. oh, you know, they changed, they changed it. <laughs> you know, yeah, there, there goes the rare part. Um, but yeah, it is really interesting how the the language has shifted. Um, I I know at one point there um, the Democratic Party was actually talking to Democrats for Life, talking with them about their party platform, and um, and they tried to temper their language a little bit, kind of back up from that that really brazen support for abortion. Um, but I don't know. I think it's just seeing both sides, both parties kind of shift in the opposite direction from each other. It's almost like when one goes one way, the other one goes the other way. And it's just like this widening gap. Um, and it's a real prioritization of, of um, abortion as a solution for a lot of legitimate issues that we face in our society. It's almost just the quick fix. Um, you know, if, if abortion's not legal, then are you going to be willing to support all these children? And um, what are we going to do for the moms? There are all these questions that come up and it's almost like abortion is just the the thing that you have to have. It's, um, it's, it's necessary in order to have um, equality for women and men. And, you know, it, yeah. the list could go on. Well, Leo, we're worshiping at the altar of pragmatism. I remember back in the day when Freakonomics was like, you know, the, the biggest book that everyone had to read in order to pretend like they were smart. And it talked about in that book about how abortion was basically necessary to a thriving economy. And then Chelsea Clinton, you know, is who's a ba basically a walking slogan machine. She was basically echoing those sentiments anytime someone would put a microphone in her face. Um, and it's that type of idea to where it's like, oh, it just seems very pragmatic. And if you don't know anything about what's happening in that procedure, you would go along with that. But you mentioned the abortion pill. So that's my Fristone or RU486. But the invention of that and the FDA approval of that in America is one of the least talked about but most nefarious things in the fight for life. Because what we're going to see as we move forward into the future, because typically what happens during one of these, uh, you know, pill-based abortions is they will get the first pill, Mifepristone, and then they will get a second pill that will, you know, without getting super technical, will expel the baby violently after they die, right? Basically after they fry to death inside, and then they are violently expelled from the womb. So it's two pills. You can be guaranteed that doctors are working on and scientists are working on a slow release one pill solution where you go into the doctor's office or, you know, we call it a doctor's office, but it's, you know, basically abortion mill, a murder mill. You get one pill which will release the mifepristone and then later on will release the second chemical that expels the killed baby from your womb. But this is going to turn into Amazon. This is going to turn into 
hey, we can we can get around the abortion laws in these backwards red states because all we have to do is make sure there's at least one company in the world, not just America, that will ship this single pill or this two pill regiment to our front deer front door and our little problem can just go away. Talk to me a little bit more about the invention of RU486 and how that basically changed the game of abortion. Yeah, well, I mean, what you're saying about how this is going to turn into abortion pills being available on Amazon or whatever, I'm sad to say, though, that is already the case. Like, there right. are websites where right. women can already order abortion pills straight to their homes from other countries. With, with free without, shipping. It will be there by Friday. Yeah. Yeah, and without regulation by the FDA. Um, and even in states where abortion is, where basically it's illegal to mail abortion pills because these overseas companies are not regulated by, you know, U.S. laws or state laws in the United States. Um, so it'll be interesting to see where that goes. I know that under Biden administration, the FDA is not going to be interested in enforcing, you know, they're, you know, trying to stop that kind of black right. market. But there are right. also companies that are operating with the stamp of approval from the FDA that send abortion pills to women. Um, just after a short online consultation or filling out a form online, you know, they're very available. And I think this has been the goal all along for the abortion industry. They want the abortion pill to just be something that women have in their medicine cabinets that they can pull out when they find out they're pregnant. Um, mm. And, you know, it, it, they see it as that's the goal. They, they want that. Just like Plan B is available over the counter, they want the abortion pill to be over, available over the counter. And the Biden administration has certainly moved in that direction with removing requirements for in-person distribution of mifepristone, which used to be the case. But now um, we have pharmacy companies like Walgreens and CVS that are working towards getting approval to fill prescriptions for the abortion pill, where in the past, an abortionist would have to give the pill to the woman in person. Um, and, and you know, <laughs> there are all, there's so much history to the abortion pill. There's so much that, that's behind this. But That's why you got to read the book. That's why you got to <laughs> yeah, read the book. Guys. It's in that's the show true. notes. Pick it up. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, but um, with the original approval of Mifepristone in 2000, all the tests that they did leading up to the approval of the abortion pill involved giving women ultrasounds of um, to, just to ensure that there was not an ectopic pregnancy that the abortion pill uh, effects would mask just to make sure she wasn't too far along in her pregnancy. Now, obviously, the abortion pill is always dangerous for the child, and that's that's terrible. But to also um, approve the abortion pill without a requirement for ultrasound, which is what they used in the testing beforehand, that is a real, I, I don't know, I, how can you do that? <laughs> you know, how can you discount the very means that you used in testing when you're actually giving these pills to women who are taking them at home? And, and yeah, they're not going to be having the same level of supervision or, um, or the same safety precautions that the women in the testing stage of the approval did have. So yeah, and since then, we've just continued to see a removal of the safety requirements as you know, the abortion industry is pushing for the pill to be available, like I said, over the counter or just available in your medicine cabinet. Yeah, it's 
It's pragmatism and money. That's the reasons why they would do things like this because they can get to the dollars even quicker. And let, let's be honest about plan B. You mentioned plan B. That's the abortion pill too. It's just of a different kind. The only difference is, is it's more like Russian roulette to where it's like, you don't even know if you're pregnant, but just in case there's a new human life that is budding inside of you, it basically stamps out that brand new life. Um, but I want to go ahead and read this quote from the book as well, because this gets into something that we talked about a little bit earlier. And that's where does shout your abortion come from? So in 2015, 30 year old Amelia, Bo now, I don't care what her last name is. Uh, 150, she wrote a 153 word post about her own positive abortion experience, and it went viral on social media. And here's her post quote, Plenty of people still believe that on some level, if you are a good woman, abortion is a choice which should be accompanied by some level of sadness, shame, and regret. But you know what? I have a good heart, and having an abortion made me happy in a totally unqualified way. Why would I? Wouldn't I be happy that I was not forced to become a mother? Unquote. That spawned a quote or hashtag shout your abortion hashtag that appeared on social media more than a quarter million times in less than two months, as many used it to celebrate their own abortions. Now, setting aside the fact that this woman's uh, statements were just ridiculous because it's like uh, being forced to become a mother. Uh, you already were a mother just because you didn't meet the baby. You were already a mother in that moment, but it's so macabre Leah that we get to a point where, you know, abortion was unthinkable and then it was shameful. And then it was like, no, no, no. Have you had your abortion yet? That's like a, a question you would ask to your feminist. Just like in baseball, it's like, hey, have you had your Tommy John surgery yet? If you're a pitcher, used to, it was a career ender. Then it was a crazy surgery. Now it's just something you get done whenever you play professional baseball as a pitcher of some kind. But it, it just reminds me of this Sodom and Gomorrah type of a mindset as it comes to the consideration for unborn human life. And I even had a buddy the other day who's not really tinfoil hatty. But he made something that sounded somewhat right. It's like, look, God's going to give us over to our enemies, whether that's China invading us or something like that and taking over our country. But God's will is going to be done because you know where the church is growing more than just about anywhere on the planet? China, where it's illegal to be a Christian. Not here, where it's the easiest you know, country on the planet to be a Christian. But just talk to me a little bit about that, that quick transition from safe, legal, and rare to no, shout your abortion. This is not only a good thing, but it's a, it's a wonderful thing that every woman should experience. Yeah. Well, just looking at the book as a whole, I think that's a good, that, that's, that story about Amelia is a good, um, end point, I guess you could say for the, the line that or the thread that we're tracing throughout the book of, um, what is the culture's understanding of what God has to say? What is the culture's understanding of sin, of scripture? Um, you know, in the first, the very first story that we, or not the very first, but the first abortion that we talk about in the book, in chapter two, um, it's this woman who is forcibly given an abortifacient on a poached egg. And the man that forces this abortion on her he goes on trial for murder. She recognizes the weight of what happened. She called it a sin to get an abortion, although it was it was him that was forcing it on her. Um, but there you see the community around them recognizing what scripture has to say about unborn life, valuing unborn life based on scripture. And now you, you know, we we fast forward to Amelia Bono and just her her outright support for abortion. She partners with this one woman 
who started a thank God for abortion kind of brand where she'll sell t-shirts that say thank God for abortion. And she'll talk about abortion as being a spiritual experience and being all about God's love. And, you know, so just a, a real twist, a twisting of scripture and a twisting of um, what God actually has to say about unborn life. Um, but yeah, so I think, I think that shift largely comes from that, um, minimization of scripture and of Christianity in mainstream culture, um, and the elevation of me, you know, like my opinions, what I think is best for me, my dreams, um, and we can even see this in the spiritism movement, which is, we, mm. Marvin talks about this in his chapters, but we see even way earlier, you know, these examples of people who turn to spiritism, um, which is just a high value of yourself and what you want and kind of following your heart in a sense. Um, and in that movement, there was a large support for abortion because it was a way to kind of assert your autonomy and be your own individual. So that's just continued. You know, the, it's the same thing that we're seeing today with the Shout Your Abortion movement. And it does come with the rejection of, of scripture and of um, just the fundamental rules that God has built into the world. Um, just the instincts of motherhood, you know, wanting to care for someone other than yourself, wanting to be a shepherd to, to someone who needs your help, to someone who's dependent on you. Um, so yeah, it is, it's quite a sad, a sad transition to see, but it is definitely the case that we're seeing more and more of these people who are shouting their abortions and, um, are proud of what they did or don't care about what they did because they don't care about anyone besides themselves. They don't love their neighbor as themselves. They don't love their unborn neighbors. It's an unordering of things. It's not a reordering. It's an unordering for sure. Uh, one thing I want to talk about now is what you spent all of chapter 46 talking about, which is the incremental approach to the pro-life cause and then the radical approach to the pro-life cause. And so you go into a lot of detail into, in that section, but how that fight has kind of been extrapolated out to people in, in that kind of do what I do or to my audience is the quote unquote radical approach is no, we're going to go for full criminalization laws. We don't want any incremental laws. We want to completely criminalize the entirety of the abortion procedure. And that's what God would want. And he has sphere sovereignty. So that's what we're going to do. Whereas the incremental approach is we're going to get through the legislature or through the whatever legal body, whatever that we can get through, that's going to help save lives. And what I've asked to people that are on the quote unquote radical side, the full criminalization, full stop, don't want to talk about anything else, is if that weren't on the books, but it was either no legislation or this legislation that would automatically delete a percentage of babies that were being born or being not born, being killed in the womb, would you take that deal? And they never say yes. They either obfuscate or they straight up say no. It's all about sphere sovereignty. It's all about this approach. But then when I read your book, you have these people that were in the pro-life fight, Leah, for decades. And they fought for the incremental stuff. But then they saw how easily these incremental laws were just turned on their heads. I mean, just recently, uh, the state of Wisconsin, they had... $50 million poured into a Supreme Court race there, and it basically flipped the court liberal. And now any pro-life legislation in the state of Wisconsin is basically going to be crumbled up and thrown away by the activist Supreme Court that they now have in the state of Wisconsin. And so now people are like, you know what? 
F it. We're burning the ships and we're just going to go for full criminalization right for the jump. No more of this incremental crap, but it's kind of vacillated back and forth. So talk to me a little bit about incrementalism versus radicalism. Yeah. Well, so story I tell in the book is about Janet Forger Porter. Um, she, um, she used to be a part of kind of the mainstream pro-life groups in Ohio, um, making those incremental gains. And I wouldn't say she's on the full criminalization side, at least not at the time of the story that I tell in the book, but um, she moved to wanting to pass a heartbeat bill in Ohio. Um, and that's when everyone that was used to be her teammates kind of <laughs> turns around and is like, no, we're not pushing for a heartbeat bill now, though it's not the right political climate. You know, it's not the right time. It's going to cause these other issues down the road. So, and that wasn't even full criminalization. It was just a heartbeat bill, which are now pretty common. Um, but at the time, the people in the kind of mainstream, like right to life groups in Ohio just were opposing her over this. So it was interesting kind of seeing her story. She wrote a book about her experience and seeing her story of how things really shifted once she tried to push for something that was a little, you know, less incremental, more on the radical end, um, just the pushback she received. But later those right to life groups in the state um, adopted the pro-life or adopted the heartbeat legislation as their next goal because they saw that, you know, the political atmosphere seemed to be um, more favorable to that. So, yeah, it's really interesting kind of seeing how some people who are, you know, all about the incremental stuff, um, eventually sometimes recognizing like, oh, man, I, you know, this just isn't working and getting frustrated and, and moving on to a different solution. And I think we'll probably keep seeing that. We've been seeing that for a long time. There's always been kind of a disagreement among pro-lifers as to what the approach should be. And I think that disagreement, unfortunately, will continue. But um, I mean, who's to say what's going to happen? I think one thing that's been on my mind is just the number of state um, constitutional amendments that went pro-abortion in the last election. So Montana, um, Kentucky, Michigan, Vermont, and California, they all had abortion-related amendments on the ballot in November. Um, not one of them turned out with a pro-life victory. So in three states, one of them being Michigan, where I live, three states, Michigan, um, California, and Vermont, passed amendments, voters, voters, <laughs> you know, supported amendments to add a right to abortion to their state constitutions. And in Kentucky and Montana, pro-life measures failed to pass. And you're thinking, that's Kentucky, like, how could that be possible? Um, but I think we're seeing a lot of fear from the um, just everyday voters, like uncertainty about what it will look like for a state to get rid of abortion, to pass anti-abortion legislation. Um, there's just a lot of confusion. And I think some of that comes from the disagreements between, um, you know, among people who oppose abortion, among the people who have these different legislative strategies. Um, but I think if people actually sat down and listened to what um, what these people who oppose abortion want, I think there would, you know, mainstream culture would maybe understand better what the goal is. It's not like they want women to die. I think that's the that's kind of the image that um, everyday voters have of pro-lifers is, oh, they hate women because that's the image that right. 
the pro-abortion industry is pushing and they have a lot of money to push that image. Um, so let's talk about that because that confusion you're talking about, it's not just accidental confusion. This is done on purpose. And so I remember Kansas basically had the first thing before the midterms and it was pro-life legislation, red state, uh, and this legislation failed and failed by like a two to one margin and people were shocked. And I was like, I wasn't because Planned Parenthood and other organizations spent tens of millions of dollars to lie to the people in Kansas, basically saying, yep, if a woman has an ectopic pregnancy in Kansas, she's going to be sentenced to death. That's basically all there is to it. All of these lies, they had no bearing in reality, but guess what? It doesn't matter what's true or not. It matters what people believe. Like think about, you know, you hear people talk about January 6th with Donald Trump. It's like, it doesn't matter what you believe about January 6th. It matters what the electorate believes about January 6th. Truth doesn't really come into play here. It matters the people's perception of that truth. But really, Leah, I feel like the incremental versus radical approach hinges on, really hinges for me at least, on one thing, and that is women being held criminally liable for the murder of their children. Now, for me, and I know this is an extreme position, I guess you could say, even in the pro-life side of things, I do think that women should be held criminally liable for ending that life. And the reason is, is because of just uh, just a basic scenario. Let's say my wife just hated her brother, okay? and But she didn't want to shed her own brother's hand by her blood, by her hand. And so she hired somebody who had a staff of people that were going to go and kill their bro- kill her brother. So she pays them to do it, and all the assassins get together. One of them's just the driver. One of the guys just made sure the gun was loaded, and then one guy got to her brother's house and pulled the trigger and actually killed him. Well, guess what? If they find those guys after the murder, they're going to make sure that all of them are charged with the same crime and... If they find out that they were paid to do that by somebody, guess what? My wife would get the exact same charges to a certain degree as the men that were actually involved in the actual killing of her brother. But even pro-lifers, we just all of a sudden pretend as if these women have no earthly idea what they're doing and that they have no agency in that decision. It's the only place where these justice-minded people supposedly are saying, well, yeah, uh, well, her ignorance of of what's actually going on is why we shouldn't make her liable. No, I don't think it's extreme at all to say that everyone involved in the taking of that human life should have to pay for the taking of that human life. What do you say? Yeah, well, I think that um, when it comes to the gospel specifically, too, if if women don't think that they have any agency in the decisions they're making, then in that specific case, do they not need the gospel? You know, it, does the gospel not apply yeah, to point. their abortion? Um, I think sometimes it, it's that kind of confusion, too, that that um, or, you know, that thought of like, well, I'm a victim of this abortion industry. So, you know, I didn't do anything wrong in the abortion when in reality, no matter what the pressures are that you you receive, there is still something deep down in your heart that is prioritizing you know, maybe what your boyfriend says over what God says. So that whole idea of like, um, you know, being a victim because of pressure. Sure, maybe there's an element of of pressure, but but you can't, you know, just because I felt pressured to steal something, say, doesn't mean I'm innocent of stealing it. Um, so it, I think right there, I think we have to think about that biblical biblically and think about what the implications are for the gospel issue if we kind of give everyone a a free pass. Um, I think it also, like what I was talking about earlier, it also puts abortion in a different category where, you know, maybe like that woman I mentioned earlier, maybe that's why she thought it was 
not a sin that Christ Christ's death paid for. Um, so yeah, I think I'd, I'd be really careful about that. Um, and in talking with people at pregnancy centers, I really appreciated the ones, like the staff, who have told me about how they're able to share the gospel with women and not say, oh, you know, you're a good person, like you, you're not doing anything wrong, but rather, you know, force them to look at themselves, look at their heart motivations and ask, who am I prioritizing in making this decision? Am I prioritizing myself? Am I prioritizing um, my boyfriend? Or am I looking to what God wants me to do? Um, and I think a lot of women, even I've spoken to, would tell you that if it had been um, murder for them to kill their child, they wouldn't have done it. <laughs> so, um, so there are some really, there are going to be some hard questions that the pro-life movement has to wrestle through with this issue because there are a lot of people who are pushing for, um, well, a lot. I guess I would say um, there are, they're louder today than what I remember hearing just a couple of years ago, but people who are saying we need to classify this just as murder and not put it in its own category of killing. That's murder and we need to, um, you know, press charges accordingly. Um, so yeah, definitely the pro-life movement and then these other groups that are pushing for full criminalization, they're going to have to talk these things out. <laughs> you know, they're going to have to figure out how they're going to approach these hard questions um, but I think it is important to keep in mind that in all of this, we, we shouldn't be giving someone a free pass, um, but rather, but rather giving them a reason to look back to the gospel instead of just assuming that they're good on their own. No, we're all sinners. We all have fallen short of God's glory. And in some cases, one of the, um, kind of illustrations of that is that you've gotten an abortion. Um, it doesn't put you in a different class of human being that you have an abortion. You're just a sinner like everyone else. But just like every other sin, that sin needs to be laid at the foot of the cross and Christ's um, death um, will cover that sin if you, know, if you will lay it at his feet. Well, and I think it is definitely a category uh, issue, a categorization issue, because people are going to talk about that in the same terms as like, well, would you criminalize a woman that steals a loaf of bread to feed her starving family? Would you criminalize someone that lied to the Gestapo when they were hiding Jews under their floorboards? It's like, these are not even vaguely the same thing, because I think I think there's not a pastor in the world that would say, uh, no, that woman should her should you know allow the image bearers of God to die as opposed to stealing. Oh no, I, I think that they should have allowed those Jews to be frog marched out into the middle of the street and and shot right there in front of this person's house. Like again, I think it's a major category error for people that are looking these things and they're they're pretending like it's a hard thing to to think through, but it's it's really really not. Now here we are, well over an hour into this interview. Let's go ahead and talk about the Dobbs decision. I feel like we've been leading all the way to this position, but as all of us saw in May the 2nd of 2022, Politico actually leaked a 98-page draft opinion authored by Justice Samuel Alito, and it was you know, the majority opinion in the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization case, which would overturn Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey. And then just a couple months later, June the 24th of 2022, one of the greatest days in the history of this country, the Supreme Court of the United States released a full opinion. And indeed, those two uh, decisions were overturned. 
It was Justices Thomas, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett, or Comey Barrett, that joined Alito. Uh, Roberts didn't join them because he's a slimy, yellow-bellied coward. But there were a, a lot of reactions to this. There, Obviously, this was the dominant news story of all the dominant news stories for 2022, at least for my money. But that... As you mentioned earlier, there were a lot of dominoes that started to fall after that. There were every there was everything that happened in the midterms. There was the lies that were being propagated by Planned Parenthood, by the Democratic Party, but I repeat myself, by the mainstream media, but I repeat myself, all going towards this pro-abortion type of attitude. So we've seen a lot of fallout, and we're going to continue to see fallout. But I guess for you, what was your reaction? not only to the league, but to the actual overturning, because it's the only show that I did not in a black V-neck because I was on a lawnmower and someone texted me and said, hey, it was overturned. So I literally run up to my studio and just record my reaction. Like it's, it's legitimately one of the greatest things I've ever been able to experience. But now here we are. I was telling pro-lifers for, for years before that, guys, even if it's overturned, the fight is just beginning. So let's talk about your reaction and then let's talk about what the fight is going to look like into the future. Yeah, well, so when the leak happened in May, um, I think both Marvin and I were pretty surprised. We were like, oh, wow, that's that's a really strong, like, you know, overturn of Roe. Like we thought it would be more of a, upholding Mississippi's 15-week law, which was the the law kind of behind the case. We thought it would be upholding that, like allowing states to pass 15-week bans and maybe push for six-week, you know, heartbeat laws. Um, But then when we saw this leaked draft, it was like, oh, well, that was farther than we expected. Um, We were obviously cautiously optimistic. That was like the two words of those couple months whenever I would talk to people in the pro-life movement. They're like, oh, well, I'm cautiously optimistic that we will see something similar in the final opinion. So then when we actually did get that in the final opinion, um, I mean, I I cried. Um, I, I knew what would be coming, basically. Not, I didn't know what would be coming, but I knew that it, it's not the end of the, the fight. But I, I think it was just like, after having talked with pro-lifers who have been in this for decades, it was just an encouragement to see this finally happen. Um, I was thinking about like, wow, like they must be, you know, so excited to see the overturn of Roe. But at the same time, I knew that this is not what a lot of people were shooting for originally back in the 1970s. Like they wanted not only states to be allowed to legislate on abortion, but rather they wanted abortion to be illegal. Like they they just wanted abortion to be um, um, not an option for the country. Um, but, and that's not what we got in this opinion. We got a an opinion that basically returns to the states the power and the ability to legislate on the abortion issue, which is why now you know, New York, Illinois, California, states like that have set themselves up to be abortion destinations in the country, while other states are moving towards, you know, um, shutting down abortion facilities, um, passing pro-life laws. Um, and I think we'll continue to see that. And one thing that I've seen happen a lot, and we, we, we really did see this last November, like I mentioned, with those constitutional amendments, I think we'll continue to see those pro-abortion amendments on ballots. It'll be interesting to see how voters react. Um, I think that the pro-life movement um, has a lot of educating to do, um, but a lot of also Christians in general just have a lot of um, 
sharing the gospel to do because I think it ultimately comes down to the heart and we can't leave the gospel out of this. We can't leave God out of this. Um, if we're going to affect the culture, we can't leave behind our greatest weapon, which is the word of God. So, um, yeah, so moving forward, I think just keep an eye on those amendments, see what states push for um, basically state level versions of Roe v. Wade or even worse, actual you know state level constitutional amendments that will add a right to abortion to the state. Um, and also look to those pro-life states and how are they dealing with this? Are they pushing for, um, you know, like heartbeat bills? Are they going beyond that? Um, what sorts of supports are they offering to women? How are they um, supporting pregnancy centers in the state legislatures? Um, so, yeah, it, this, this is, in my mind, somewhat of a big question mark to see how things go down. But I'm thankful to know that the Lord is sovereign over all of it and he will accomplish his purposes. When I think you're a spot on that this is a gospel issue, uh, whenever I talk about mass shootings or school shootings or something like that, you know, everyone loves to run to their side of, oh, it's the gun's fault or oh, it's a, it's a problem with no security at the schools. It's a problem with soft targets. And there's truth to at least some of those arguments, but ultimately this is a gospel issue because if we're known by our fruit, I'm assuming fruit is not grabbing multiple weapons and going into a school and killing innocent children. I don't think that that is fruit of a Christian life or a, a deep and actual belief in, in the gospel. But we have covered a lot of ground in this discussion today. Uh, again, guys, uh, the name of the book is The Story of Abortion in America, a street-level history from 1652 to 2022. I can't recommend this book any more highly. Uh, it is just an absolute tremendous book. I'm so glad that you were a part of it and that you were able to come and talk to our audience about it today. But that's all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? No, but thank you so much for having me. I'm glad we got to talk about the book and I hope people can read it because I think it has a lot of really valuable stories in there that I think will be um, helpful as people approach culture and trying to have these conversations about abortion. I absolutely agree. It is in the show notes, guys. Go and pick it up yourself. Leah Savas, thank you for coming on Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Thanks so much for having me. There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed my time with Leah Savas. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So here are the links I've got for you today. I've got an Amazon link to where you can go and buy your own copy of the story of abortion in America, a link to Leah's Twitter page, and a link to World's website. Thank you guys for listening to this episode. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is our song Cutting the Tides, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah. Judah.